a balmy day in May of 1980, Charles Maguera carried his seven-month-old daughter in his arms and walked out of the Tallahassee, Florida Greyhound stations towards one of the buses. His wife, Wanda, and daughter, Manisha, were on their way to Fort Lauderdale to attend the birthday of Wanda's grandmother. The bus ride would take over 10 hours with stops along the way. The night before, Wanda told Charles that she wishes he can come with them, but it was too late to buy a ticket. Before they boarded, Charles hugged his wife and kissed his daughter. Then he waved goodbye and headed back home. What Charles did not realize at that moment was he will never see his family ever again. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I am your host, Lynn. In today's episode, we'll travel to Florida and learn about a terrible accident that caused the collapse of Florida's Sunshine Skyway Bridge. When you think of Florida, usually you think sunshine, sparkling clear blue waters, and world-renowned beaches. But from time to time, incidents like the one we'll talk about today remind us that Florida has its dark moments. We'll learn about the bridge itself, the people who experienced the tragedy, what exactly happened that day, and the aftermath. The Sunshine Skyway Bridge is located in the Gulf side of Florida, rising up from the waters of Tampa Bay. The bridge got its name from a contest held by the state that drew 22,000 entries. A woman named Virginia Seymour won the prize. The north end of the bridge was built at the tip of St. Petersburg and the south end on the city of Terracea. Before the bridge connected the two cities, Residents and visitors used to ride the B-Line Ferry between St. Petersburg and Piney Point, or would have had to take the main roads for about two hours instead of a 30-minute ride across to get to Tampa. The northbound lane of the bridge was constructed in 1950 and was completed in 1954. The bridge was officially opened and inaugurated on September 6, 1954. In 1967, the southbound lane was added and was finally completed in 1971. From an engineering standpoint, the bridge was designed as a cantilever bridge. A cantilever bridge is a bridge whose main elements are structures anchored at only one end while the other projects horizontally into open space. A simple cantilever bridge has two arms extending from opposite sides of an obstacle, and in this case, the obstacle is Tampa Bay. Each arm extends until they meet at the center. The length of the bridge stretches about a little over four miles from the north point to the south point. At its highest vertical peak, at the center measures 150 feet from the surface of the bay to the edge of the concrete. To support the heavy traffic and load, the Sunshine Skyway used steel trusses and piers made of reinforced concrete. Other cantilever bridges standing today include the Bay Bridge in Northern California and the Quebec Bridge in Canada. The total cost of the construction was around $47 million, 
equal to approximately $243 million in today's dollars. When construction was completed, the bridge had a total of four lanes divided into two spans marked in maps as Interstate 257 and U.S. State Route 19, South and North. Aside from the road traffic on the bridge, private and commercial boats and freighters usually pass under the bridge as well. While most private owners enjoy the warm breeze and almost year-round sunshine along the bay's various marinas, it is also the cruise and shipping lanes for the port of Tampa. The span that met in the center, from the first pier of the north to the first pier of the south, was about 864 feet in length and was called the Mullet Key Channel. The distance of the channel was marked by two set of buoys, on its right and left. If you have ever been to the Gulf side of Florida, you know that the year-long sunshine can be sometimes dampened with tropical weather consisting of heavy rain and thunderstorms. After all, it was said that the origins of the town's name was said to be from the Native American phrase for sticks of fire that may be used to describe the lightning strikes that often happen in the area. Even though the weather can be indecisive and unpredictable at times, no one can dispute the beautiful blue sky and sparkling waters that frame the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. One of the freighters that frequented the Mullet Key Channel and passed under the bridge was the MV Summit Venture. The phosphate freighter was a bulk carrier built in 1976 in Japan. She was about 606 feet long and can cruise at 13.5 knots or 15.5 miles an hour at 100% power. In 1980, the ship was registered in Liberia and piloted by Captain John Lero. Captain Lero was well experienced in leading the shipping crews and handling the helm of many cargo ships like the Summit Venture. At the time, daily traffic on the bridge consists of about 30,000 crossing vehicles in both directions. It is used as a shortcut for mass transit that significantly reduces travel time. Greyhound buses frequently cross the bridge. This includes Greyhound Bus Number 4508. On Wednesday, May 7, 1980, Bus 4508 started its voyage at 11.30 in the evening from Chicago, Illinois, and its final stop was Miami, Florida. Along the way, the bus made scheduled stops at major cities crossing state lines, including Louisville, Nashville, and Montgomery. The final day of the journey stopped at Tuskegee, Tallahassee, Tampa, and St. Petersburg. Driving the Greyhound is 43-year-old Michael Curtin from Apollo Beach, Florida. Michael has over 12 years of driving experience for Greyhound and was based from the terminal in St. Petersburg. After St. Petersburg, the bus was to stop at other terminals including Bradenton, Fort Lauderdale, Naples, Hollywood, and reach Miami at around 3.35 in the afternoon. It was May 9, 1980 when the MV Summit Venture and its crew were on their way from the Gulf of Mexico to the port of Tampa, which is about 58.4 miles one way. The stop was scheduled to pick up a load of phosphate at the port. In the first stage of the journey, the ship and crew were met with intermittent fog and rain, and since the ship had empty cargo, it cruised a bit high on the shallow waters of, of Tampa Bay. 
At around 7 in the morning, Captain John Lero observed gusts of wind and higher waves as they navigated their way towards the port. So he ordered one of the crew members as a lookout and another on anchor detail. Both were posted in front of the ship. Minutes later, another tanker, the Pure Oil, was seen exiting outbound on the other side of the bridge. Captain Lero noted the tanker's approach. On the road, Greyhound Bus 4508 left the terminal at St. Petersburg at around exactly 7.05 in the morning. The next stop was Bradenton, expected to arrive at 7.50 in the morning. At this point, the summer venture was gliding at a speed of 11 to 12 miles per hour towards the bridge. Exactly 18 minutes later, the weather shifted and darkness loomed over Tampa Bay. Gale force winds picked up to 60 miles per hour and torrential rain poured down hard. So hard that Captain Lero can't even see the bow of his ship. It was not good. He immediately dropped to half speed. Vehicles and travelers on the bridge at the exact time experienced the same conditions. Later, reports from drivers confirmed that the rain and winds caused the bridge to sway to its left and right. Within seconds, visibility dropped down to zero and downpour increased to 7 inches per hour. To make matters worse, on board Summit Venture, the ship's radar failed as it was about to reach the channel's critical point. The critical point is where vessels need to make a 13-degree point turn in order to pass under the 800-foot middle span of the bridge from the channel lane. Captain Lero has executed this maneuver many times, but this time the ship's weight was lighter than usual and rocked above the shallow waters. He quickly assessed the situation. It was said that at this point, Captain Lero had three choices. One, drop his anchor and ride out the storm away from the channel, but risk crashing with the approaching tanker pure oil to pass on his left in zero visibility and no radar. Two, stop his engines completely but expose the right side of the cargo ship to the winds and lose control. 3. Proceed toward the channel and pass under the bridge at a slower pace. Bruce Atkins was alongside Captain Lero as he checked the situation inside the wheelhouse of the ship. It was 7.28 in the morning when one of the lookouts sent a signal to the captain, letting them know that there was a buoy to the left side of the vessel. Captain Lero then figured, from where the ship was currently cruising within the channel, that this buoy to the left was 2A. Buoy 2A marks the south side of the channel lane, which is on the right side of the cargo ship, as it glides towards the center span of the bridge. With the 60 mile per hour winds pushing the ship from the right, Captain Lero felt that the wind was in his favor and calculated that the ship can move forward at this speed for around 20 to 30 seconds until he can steer the ship toward its left and get back on course within the channel lane. Armed with his experience, knowledge of what the ship can handle, harbor pilot Captain Lero chose option 3, to proceed. At 7.31 in the morning, two minutes from when the lookout signaled, Captain Lero lowered the ship's speed to slow ahead. Slow ahead is right below half speed 
and two notches above full stop. As fast as the heavy rain and winds came, a sliver of sunshine peeked through the dark clouds. The light shined down the waters of the bay for a quick minute. This small ray of light revealed something in front of the ship. The moment Captain Lero realized what it was, his entire body shivered in terror. To the ship's right, getting larger by the second, was one of the reinforced concrete piers marked Pier 2S. The ship was not where Captain Lero thought it should be, and with a failed radar, the winds changed from the right side of the ship and pushed it from the left. This caused the ship to completely go off course from the channel and beyond the 800-foot wide central span of the bridge. At 7.32 in the morning, Captain Lero deployed the anchors and quickly reversed the engines. But by then, it was way too late. The wind steered the ship right onto Pier 2 West of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. It was 7.33 in the morning. Pier 2S toppled over and it took with it a thousand-foot span of the southbound lane straight down the green and gray waters of the bay. The force of the collision did not bother the ship itself, but when the crew looked up, the center section of the bridge cascaded down into the water, carrying with it portions of the steel cantilever. On the bridge, Greyhound Bus 4508, with 23 passengers, along with six other vehicles, plunged into the bay over 150 feet below. The wet road and the sudden collapse of the bridge did not give the vehicles any chance to stop. A blue Ford Courier was the seventh vehicle to follow the others, but its fall was stopped by the bow of the Summit Venture. Inside was 58-year-old Wesley McIntyre. Seconds later, a Buick began to skid towards the broken edge of the bridge and tires squealed as the brakes fought hard against the damp road. The driver of the Buick was Richard Hornbuckle. Richard's Buick stopped 14 inches from the crest of the accident. In many videos and photos of that day, you can see Richard's car right beside the broken span. Bridge inspection engineer Stephen Plotkin was quoted to have said, It's like a toothpick being smashed by a sledgehammer. If the bridge was in perfect condition, it couldn't have held up under that kind of impact. The U.S. Coast Guard was on the scene minutes later following the mayday call by Captain Lero. The MV Summit Ventures hull sustained damage, but none of the crew members were seriously injured. Some of the twisted heap of metal and concrete from the bridge laid on top of the ship's bow smashed together with Wesley McIntyre's Ford Courier. 
Emergency crews arrived and area rescue teams were called from all over the vicinity to assist. Bill Covert led a search and rescue training program at Eckerd College in Pinellas County. In 1980, there were no official dive teams, so Covert was called to assist. Because of the weather, visibility was terrible both in and out of the waters, but divers were able to search within half a mile of the wreckage. Fireman Gerard Chalmers was the first one to dive about 60 feet below the surface. He found the wreckage of metal and piles of rivets. He also found an El Camino, one of the vehicles that toppled over with the driver still inside but unresponsive. He was unable to take the driver with him, so he grabbed a briefcase inside the truck for proper identification and marked the spot to come back later. As bodies and debris started to float, the search and rescue then became a search and recover. What Chalmers remember was the unsettling silence. It was so quiet, even peaceful, if not for the wreckage on the bridge and the damage on the MV Summit venture. The recovered bodies were brought to the closest piece of land, Fort DeSoto State Park. The park became the temporary site for the United States Coast Guard and recovery teams to converge. Before noon, around 17 bodies were recovered. Divers were warned about marine life near and around the channel as Tampa Bay is known to have shark-infested waters. Despite this fact, divers continued the recovery efforts. Coverage of the disaster was continued around the clock with the helicopters showing a live feed of the wreckage. Traffic on both lanes of the bridge was immediately halted and rerouted. People from around the area were able to view what was left of the bridge and the ship from the surrounding inlets. In the crowd was Tammy Pryor King. When she and her husband heard the accident on the news, they immediately went to the site. Her father, Jim, crossed the bridge every day to work. She was hoping that her dad made it over the bridge. Since the collision happened at 7.30 in the morning, and he would have crossed the bridge already. But on this day, it was different. Later, they found out that as Jim started to drive away, he forgot to move the trash bins for pickup, so he went back home. If he did not have to go back, he would have made it across the span before the MV Summit Venture collided with the bridge. Tammy did not see her dad or heard from him, so there was some glimmer of a hope that Jim was rescued. She made her way at the site, where the recovery team collected all items. While there, she looked through some of the items nervously. On one side, she saw something familiar. She saw her father's briefcase, the same one that Gerard Chalmers found on his first dive at the bottom of the bay, the one inside the El Camino. Jim was one of the victims of this tragedy. When the search and recovery were done, the number of lives taken from the Sunshine Skyway Bridge collapse was 35. The oldest victim was 92 years old, and the youngest was 7-month-old Manisha Mogera. Of the 35 victims, 28 died from blunt force trauma injuries, while 7 died from drowning. Wesley McIntyre, the driver of the Ford Courier, was the only survivor. He was treated at St. Anthony's Hospital for his injuries. The National Transportation Safety Board and Coast Guard conducted separate investigations. Captain John Lero was right in the middle of it all. 
public scrutiny of Captain Lero was heightened by one fact. Only 11 weeks before May 9th, another phosphate freighter named Joanna Dan also collided with the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. The collision had a lesser impact than that of the MV Summit Venture, but was significant enough to be noted by the NTSB and the Coast Guard. And guess who was the helm of the Joanna Dan? None other than Captain John Lero. In another incident, a U.S. Coast Guard cutter patrolling the Bay Waters also met a terrible accident. U.S. Coast Guard ship Blackthorn collided with another freighter named Capricorn on the west side of the bridge. The Blackthorn sank to the bottom of the bay and claimed 23 of its crew members. After months of investigation, the NTSB cleared Captain Lero of negligence while the Coast Guard found his decision to proceed in zero visibility contributed to the collision. But it was also found that the storm of enormous proportions was beyond Captain Lero's control. He was cleared of all charges. In the end, the Coast Guard and the state grand jury declared the incident as an act of God. In 1984, Wesley McIntyre settled with the owners of the MV Summit Venture for $175,000. While the ship continued to be of service for another 13 years, it returned to Tampa Bay in 1990, this time with no incidents. The ship changed owners one more time until it was lost in a storm off the coast of Vietnam in 2010. Construction of the new Sunshine Skyway Bridge started in February 1982. A new design was implemented, and other safety precautions were put in place to avoid collisions from marine vessels that continued to sail in and out the channels of Tampa Bay. The new bridge was designed as a cable-stayed bridge where cables extend directly from pylons along the bridge to connect and support the deck. The main span was built to be 50% wider and 36 structural dolphins were attached to support its columns. Structural dolphins are barriers and the ones made for the new bridge were made of concrete, shaped into a cylinder, and the top part extends above the surface. Each barrier was placed around the piers to absorb impact from the vessels. The new bridge was constructed parallel to the old and the north and south inbound spans were turned into fishing piers. In 1993, several parts of the old bridge were demolished. The bridge was then named as Bob Graham Sunshine Skyway Bridge after the Florida governor and the U.S. Senator Bob Graham. Floridians still call it the Skyway. It opened on April 20, 1987. Today, the bridge stands tall in the blue waters of Tampa Bay. The Travel Channel rates the Skyway as third in the top 10 bridges of the world. Captain Lero continued to pilot other freighters after the incident, but he carried the guilt of what happened on May 9th every single day. He retired from being a harbor pilot and went back to school to earn his master's degree. He became a crisis counselor at the Hillsborough County Crisis Center, helping others cope with life's unending challenges. Captain Lero passed away from multiple sclerosis on August 31, 2002. 35 years after the bridge collapse, a monument was built in 2015 in honor of those who died. The six-foot-tall memorial is located on the northern side of the Skyway 
and overlooks the shipping channel. The memorial was a result of the successful fundraising by Bill DeYoung of St. Petersburg, a journalist who wrote a book about the event called Skyway, the true story of Tampa Bay's signature bridge and the man who brought it down. Every year on the anniversary of the bridge collapse, Wesley McIntyre threw 35 carnations over the new bridge to remember the victims. He passed away in 1990. Nowadays, his family continued this tradition, but added one more carnation in honor of Wesley. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. Make sure you join us next week for our next episode. For more information about the podcast, comment about the episode. Follow us on Twitter at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you.